I'm living in this old train carriage. Hence, in a train carriage going nowhere. Inside the carriage, I'm surrounded by books. And outside, surrounded by bush. It's amazing how many other animals I share this forest with. Echidnas have come chasing ants up to my front deck. Rosellas and cockatoos visit like groups of tourists. Skinks frequently trespass into the train and these ravens call out as careless as flatulence. The last few nights I've had some of the best animal encounters out here yet. Last night I accidentally let a bat into the carriage. Now I've let bats into huts in the past and they can cause a bit of damage so I was pretty grateful when it departed rather quickly. But a couple of nights back I saw maybe the best thing I've ever seen in my life. I was going out to this dunny, this little drop dunny out the back of the carriage. I heard some rustling in the cutting grass and there before me was a long-nosed potteroo. Quite a, a rare, shy little critter. Maybe not that shy. A moment later, a second one emerged and uh, mounted the first one that I'd seen. <laughs> Started shagging it. Rooting potteroos. Maybe that's the most beautiful phrase in the English language. Tell you what, there was no sense of social distancing there. Behind this abode of mine, there's a mountain range made of an igneous rock that so much seems to transform light into profuse colours that I've heard it called the Rainbow Mountains. Narrow tracks are cut in the deep forests on their slopes each climbing its own way towards an unpopulated plateau, the domain of the wedge-tailed eagle and the red-necked wallaby, a field of ironstone boulders that seem to arrange themselves into cairns by their own volition, with shrubs wielding wicked spikes growing between them, and the wind ever roving, searching, wandering against the trajectory of the sun. I often head up there on those paths in pursuit of nothing in particular. Just a high place by the source of a vast network of creeks and rivers. Just a spot on the precipice of a horizon of mountains. Layers of blue that overlap and multiply until they fade into sky dissolve into sea. I go up there to face the distance. To see the shades of blue that belong to whatever is in that realm beyond.
Some years ago, I was given a gift. A piece of sea glass that a friend had found on a beach in Valencia, which looked quite a lot like the shape of Tasmania. It was the colour of topaz, and I tied it on a string and wore it around my neck until eventually it came off when I dived into a deep lake. Off it floated, into the Derwent River, down the estuary to the southern ocean on its own journey elsewhere. I was sad to lose that little symbol of my home island. But I suppose that I never did feel the flip side like others do. That being Tasmanian is like having a millstone round your neck. I feel like plenty of Tasmanians can tell you a yarn about meeting someone, usually a young man, at the mouth of some body of water about to try to take a canoe or dinghy or rowboat out into open seas in order to escape Tasmania. They're usually poorly equipped with minimal provisions as if the impulse to flee has finally gotten the better of them and they've brought their boat straight to the water, determined to get off the island right now or die trying. The geographical facts of Tasmania certainly invite strong emotions, exaggerations even. The island underneath the so-called island continent, next stop South Antarctica, 15,000 k's away from our nearest neighbour to the west. Although we're only an hour away from a major city, the sense of isolation has never been far from Tasmanian identity. We exist on the margins where things have mutated in unprecedented ways. It's not entirely illusion. The first families migrated about 40 millennia ago, slowly down a peninsula that dangled off the southeast corner of Australia, following the landmarks of granite mountains. And then 10,000 years ago, Bass Strait was formed from glacial melt towards the end of the Ice Age, and thousands of Aboriginal people were stranded here. They had no further interaction with anyone off the island until they watched Dutch ships sailing around the southern parts in the 1600s. So their culture was consequently unlike any other in the world until it was invaded and colonised. So I think that awareness of distance is still a defining characteristic of Tasmanian life. The prevailing winds here reach us from unpopulated expanses of ocean. And our landscapes have so few people that you can go to certain places and just not see anyone for days. And this is a practice that, for me at least, is intrinsic to how I understand myself. Yet I've also made a habit of travelling, of moving frequently, of taking outward journeys. In Tasmania there are important relationships between disparate forces, the mountains and the sea, for example. 
and likewise I have found some value in the rhythm of departure and return. Not now, though. Our island's borders are closed, for the first time in my life, at least. I am now bound by the ocean, confined to this landmass and its idiosyncrasies. Now distant places must remain at a distance. And the crucial elements of my life can only be found in a personal inland, the hinterland of who I am. Distance is a double-edged sword. It both protects us and excludes us. An enclosure may bring us some closeness. We've watched this COVID caper from afar, knowing it would inevitably reach us. But belatedly we closed the border because only a couple months ago we were welcoming a million or so tourists, beckoning them to us for a summer in Tassie. That's another of those strange relationships. The distance. The feeling of having disappeared. Or wanting to. As for my own story of the young man who wanted to kayak the heck out of Tasmania, he was on a Bass Strait beach, no particularly auspicious spot, with a raincoat over his wetsuit and a dry bag full of snacks. He told me about his desperate plan and I wished him luck and then lay out on the beach with a book. An hour later he was back. I looked at him quizzically and he merely replied, Too bloody far. A track exists to facilitate movement. And our movement is devoutly related to at least one particular force. Gravity. We are used to thinking of gravity as a limit. The terms that we use for excelling in an activity are often related to breaking that bond with gravity. Soaring or flying or reaching for the stars... And falling is the opposite type of word. To fall is to fail. Yet if we think at all about it, gravity is our best mate. Without gravity, we are something other than human. Maybe nothing determines our lives like gravity. We may as well not chasten it for making us as we are. 
Each footstep is a statement of our symbiosis with gravity. Or are we parasites, feeding off gravity in order to move through the world? I think about tracks as a metaphor all too often. Overthink it, maybe you'd say. I've spent a lot of my time working as a bushwalking guide and it turns out that if you tally the days I've spent a year of my life working on a particular track that hikers like in the Tasmanian high country. Many of my closest mates are rangers and guides in the same national park. A motley mob of mates who have embraced a strange, seasonal, casual, itinerant and not highly paid lifestyle. More than a hundred years ago, an Australian bushman wrote a poem about a subculture of workers who lived on what he called the Wallaby Track. Stretching away to the plains out back and the big scrubs lawn and lonely. I'm not sure he was exactly thinking of tour guides who lead ritzy trips into the mountains, but I've got to say I feel some affinity with these rough rovers of the Australian landscape who had given up everything for glittering stars and campfires and wild, rowdy birds and marsupial acquaintances. The romance of that lifestyle can't be questioned. But that bush poet has all of us dying alone and forgotten somewhere just a few feet from the wallaby track we so loved. And in the same spirit, many of us have wondered if it wouldn't be best to get off that track before it's too late. Now, perhaps, the hypothesis has changed. And that wallaby track might be a carpet that's being furled up at our feet. Or maybe it's leading off to wilder terrain, rougher scrub, colder nights, lonelier and more lawn landscapes. It was Robert Frost a bush poet of another sort, maybe, who pointed out the poignancy of how way leads on to way, how the tracks never really run out, how they streak through various vast spaces, how they meet at innumerable intervals, intersections where choices must be made, where it seems that all sorts of movements and machinations are conniving to keep us from ever going back to where we once were. We seem to always be diverted. The roads we turn away from now, we're probably not going to encounter again. There are ways we remember from a while ago, but usually they've vanished without a trace, become overgrown roots, become barred with boom gates. Those who try to trespass into the past aren't prosecuted, but what does become of us? We must let gravity be the guide. Venus rises through the rich blue of dusk. I witness its slow course through vast space and recognise that it lives under the influence of forces different to my own. I'm not a fatalist. I won't merely be passive to the changes that are made around me. But I also have to work within the confines of what is possible. Take the tracks which seem 
best out of the ones available to me and not beat myself around the ear holes with regret if it turns out my route missed something later that seems important. Because although way leads on to way and you never get to go back to earlier intersections, you don't have to tick off every landmark. And what's valuable can usually be picked up on another journey, somewhere along some other track. Later on in the long and beautiful stretch of forest that we've found ourselves dropped into. The other morning, a, a bumblebee flew into my train carriage and landed on the cover of a particular book, which showed a reproduction of an old landscape painting by Arthur Streeton, which, like much of the Australian bush, was mostly composed of blue sky. The bumblebee sat down on it like a squatter making his own selection of land. And while I find bumblebees as cute as the next person, I've got to admit, I'm somewhat biased against them. They're an introduced species and they outcompete the native bees here, who are already underdogs of the bush, if you'll permit me to confuse the animals with that metaphor. Anyway, to me, bumblebees are big, furry, dim-witted addicts to the colour blue. I once watched one bounce impulsively between a blue shirt, a blue enamel mug, the blue plastic of a lighter a blue waterproof bag and the blue label of an emptied bottle of Sauvignon Blanc. But I have read that this is probably just a response to the spectrum of colours that bees can see. They lack the photoreceptors for redder shades, the end of the spectrum. But their vision lets them take in yellows and blues and violets and even ultraviolet. Now you'll have heard people use the phrase, out of the blue. But I find sometimes that I want to go into the blue instead. But of course you can't get into it. Blue scatters at your approach. And when you approach that blue of the mountains, they transform gradually and subtly before your eyes and by the time you've arrived you inevitably find they've turned into the colour of mud or sand or metal the tracks we take lead into a distance that we don't ever exactly reach and the future is a shade of blue that we barely perceive Maybe bumblebees intuit it, but I suspect not. They seem far too relaxed about it if they do.
I got off the plateau after five days surrounded by the most beautiful landscapes. Alpine meadows of a vibrant green riven with swift, dark, drinkable creeks. Great bluffs of mauve-tinted grey inhabited by black eagles and white hawks. Heath bushes burdened with berries of pink and purple like they were bearing childhood lollies. And the last straggling flowers. A few miniature tea tree blossoms. Late bright guinea flowers. The final skinny sprays of snow gentians. I got down and found out that all the national parks in Tasmania have now been closed. So there are all these tracks up to those endless acres of open country and I do not have permission to take myself up there. Not for the time being. You've probably heard of Truganini. The Aboriginal Tasmanian woman born at the end of the 18th century who lived through the duration of the British invasion of her native country. I once read that she spoke of a mood that followed her in her last days. Now, Truganini lived through the worst and most violent times that I've ever heard about, and, and that mood came at the end of decades of torture for herself and her people. So I don't presume to speak for her or try to compare myself to what she experienced, but, but the phrase that she used to describe this feeling came to me spontaneously as I traipsed back down from my bushwalk this past weekend. Big lonely one, she called it. Like a spirit that slinks across the land. A shadow that falls heavily everywhere. Big lonely one. Now, I don't know exactly what Truganini might have meant by it, but this sentence seems like a line of poetry that suits these times. Because the coming months loom menacingly for some of us. The threat of sickness is one thing, and significant enough in itself. But then there's the impending sense of loss. And of course the isolation and the stagnation. And as much as anything, maybe the unknowing. And you know, I feel it too. I may be looking at my stockpile of books like I've won the bloody lottery, but I don't know what kind of world I'm going to see when I pull my head from out of those pages. And I know that these months will have so much less laughter and love in them than any others of my whole life. Here in Tassie, it's going to be winter. It'll be dark a lot of the time, and often cold, and there's probably going to be nowhere to go, and I don't reckon there's going to be any mates who can come and visit me here at the train. It'll be a season with no touch. Few faces, faint voices, no football, a time of great distance.
and the constant presence of a force that maybe we will know as Big Lonely One. But we're going to meet again. And when we do, I would like to be proud of who I have been in these intervening months. To come back to my mob of mates having gone to greater depths within myself. Because whatever's next, it will not be a waste if I come through it a better person. And honestly, in the unlikely event that I die, can I please be reincarnated as a potteroo?